Welcome back to Misdiagnosed. I'm your host, Caitlin Pyle, and this is episode 10. It's a very exciting time because many new podcasts don't make it past episode 10. And so I guess we have one more episode to do to make it officially past episode 10, but (laughs) it's still a big deal. And we're picking up where we left off on the last episode, where after 2,000 years of believing it was an actual so-called illness, where all manner of terrifying treatments were employed, hysteria was written out of our medical textbooks. But something took its place. At the end of the last episode, which was all about hysteria, I shared with you a list of symptoms that used to be ascribed to hysteria, but are now ascribed to the very recently in human history discovered so-called syndrome, PMS, premenstrual syndrome. And what's weird about this is they don't call it a disorder, but wait, (laughs) it wouldn't be an episode of Misdiagnosed if I didn't mention the DSM the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, at least once, because those fuckers invented a disorder. (laughs) It's the same symptoms ascribed to PMS, and it's called PMDD, which stands for Premenstrual Dysphoric Disorder. So I've got some direct quotes. I'm sitting here at my desk recording this with my copy of the DSM-5, and I've got the digital version of the text revision when they changed a couple things and added in prolonged grief disorder and all that. But the basis of DSM-5 is the same. That's why they didn't call it DSM-6 yet. Here we are in the DSM-5. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder is sandwiched in with the other depressive disorders. Right after persistent depressive disorder or dysthymia. And the diagnostic criteria for PMDD, it says in the majority of menstrual cycles, at least five symptoms must be present in the final week before the onset of menses. They invented this. Like they literally decided these are the symptoms and at least five of them have to be present. And if there's not, then it's not the disorder. And it's just they're inventing the pathology to be able to call it an illness, a disorder when it's just a list of symptoms. So at least five symptoms must be present in the final week before the onset of menses start to improve within a few days after the onset of menses and become minimal or absent in the week post menses. It sounds like the normal up and down of our energy in the cycle. It says one or more of the following symptoms must be present. One, marked affective lability, like mood swings, feeling suddenly sad or tearful, or increased sensitivity to rejection. Marked irritability or anger, or increased interpersonal conflicts. Marked depressed mood, feelings of hopelessness or self-deprecating thoughts marked anxiety, tension, and or feelings of being keyed up or on edge. Keyed up. That's kind of an interesting vocabulary choice. And then it says one or more of the following symptoms must additionally be present to reach a total of five symptoms when combined with symptoms from criterion B above, which is the list we just read. One, decreased interest in usual activities. Does anybody feel like doing the same things they always do when they're around their period? I certainly don't. And that's natural. That's normal. Subjective difficulty in concentration, check. Lethargy, easy fatigability, or marked lack of energy. That's natural. Your body is devoting a lot of its immune system to protecting the reproductive system, and so you're naturally going to have lower energy. Marked change in appetite, overeating, or specific food cravings. Hypersomnia or insomnia. A sense of being overwhelmed or out of control, and physical symptoms such as breast tenderness or swelling, joint or muscle pain, a sensation of bloating or weight gain. It says that the symptoms must have been met for most menstrual cycles that occurred in the preceding year. 
The symptoms are associated with clinically significant distress. So how do you determine that? That's always the question. They can just say, oh, it's clinically significant. What does that even mean? Are there tests for it? It's all subjective. It says the presence of physical and or behavioral symptoms in the absence of mood and or anxious symptoms is not sufficient for a diagnosis. So there have to be mental symptoms like the anxiety, the depression, decreased interest in usual activities. They have to be mental symptoms, according to them, for it to be considered disorder that belongs to their manual. Here's where it gets even more interesting. It says under the development and course section, this is page 173, onset of premenstrual dysphoric disorder can occur at any point after menarche, so after your first period. Incidences of new cases over a 40-month follow-up period is 2.5%. Who is doing this research? (laughs) Nobody's paying for this research to be done. 95%, and there's no references. That's what's crazy. There's no footnotes in this book. None whatsoever. Anecdotally, many individuals, as they approach menopause, report that symptoms worsen. Symptoms cease after menopause, although cyclical hormone replacement can trigger the re-expression of symptoms. And then there's a whole section on risk and prognostic factors, and it even says environmental factors associated with the expression of premenstrual dysphoric disorder include stress, history of interpersonal trauma, seasonal changes, and sociocultural aspects of female sexual behavior in general, and female gender role in particular. Women who use oral contraceptives may have fewer premenstrual complaints than do women who do not use oral contraceptives. But we know from the last episode that it is a class one carcinogen, so... There's a give and take. And it does differentiate between PMS and PMDD. It says that there's a minimum of five symptoms not required. So you can still have a disorder or a syndrome, but you don't qualify as having the real disorder, which is just another term that means nothing, just more intense symptoms. There's no stipulation for affective symptoms, which I think they mean mental symptoms that they can attribute to the mental faculties. That affects your personal affect. This condition may be more common than premenstrual dysphoric disorder, although the estimated prevalence of premenstrual syndrome varies. While premenstrual syndrome shares the feature of symptom expression during the premenstrual phase of the menstrual cycle, it is generally considered to be less severe than PMDD. Of course, that's because you said it does. (laughs) There's a whole section on differentiating it from bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, and persistent depressive disorder. It says the overlap of symptoms is particularly salient for differentiating PMDD from major depressive episodes, persistent depressive disorder, bipolar disorders, and borderline personality disorder. The rate of personality disorders is no higher in individuals with premenstrual dysphoric disorder than in those without disorder. I'm not really sure how they can know that. (laughs) And again, there's no footnotes, there's no studies to cite, none of it. It's just, this is what's true. A whole section on hormonal treatments Some women who present with moderate to severe premenstrual symptoms may be using hormonal treatments, including contraceptives. If such symptoms occur after initiation of exogenous hormone use, the symptoms may be due to the use of hormones. No shit. Rather than to the underlying condition of premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And I was thinking when I read that, how about a cause? So they're talking about underlying condition and that the symptoms are due to the underlying condition of premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Here's the thing, that all these disorders are symptoms. <laughs> they're using circular language here and saying that the symptoms are due to symptoms, the underlying condition. And that's all these conditions, these, these disorders in this manual are, are lists of symptoms. So it really doesn't make any sense. It sounds really fancy. If you don't know any better, it can sound like the truth, but it's not. 
It says if the woman stops hormones and the symptoms disappear, this is consistent with substance slash medication induced depressive disorder. Well, that would make sense. It says the absence of a symptom-free period during the post-menstrual interval obviates the diagnosis of premenstrual dysphoric disorders. And it's true that symptoms have become the new normal. So when are you going to have a symptom-free period? You know, people are not going to say, hmm, I didn't even notice my period this month. It's so not normal to have it be symptom-free like that. So that's what it says about PMDD in a nutshell in the DSM-5. And as I was reading this, I was like, oh, MG, this is exactly what PMS is. And so many of us could easily receive this as a diagnosis. It's crazy to me that there's no discussion whatsoever on the cause of any disorder in this book. (laughs) They talk about diagnostic features and prevalence, like the symptoms are the cause and that the disorder is scientific fact. It's literally just a name invented to describe the symptoms. And I want to say, just as a reminder, that when I say that PMS and PMDD or any other disorder was invented, I'm in no way, no way, shape, or form saying that the symptoms that you're experiencing aren't real or that they're all in your head. In fact, it's far more likely that Western medical practitioners would tell you it's all in your head, (laughs) not someone like me, like doctors are more likely to tell you that it's all in your head or send you to a psychiatrist who would listen to you talk about your symptoms and maybe you talk about it too fast and they diagnose you with a mental disorder just so can bill your insurance company because if you remember they don't get paid unless there's a diagnosis and sometimes doctors who are not psychiatrists have been taught to think of psychiatrists in a certain way and so if there's something they don't understand they call in another professional it's kind of like passing the buck Anyway, that's why there's so many disorders in the DSM, because everybody qualifies. But we know it's not all in your head. The symptoms are very much real. And hysteria was recognized as a disease by the American Psychiatric Association up until 1952, which was right around the time that PMS became part of the daily vocab. And that included a lot of symptoms, which you may remember being ascribed to hysteria. Symptoms like depression, angry outbursts, irritability, crying spells, it sounds like a drug commercial, Um, anxiety, confusion, social withdrawal, poor concentration, insomnia, increased nap taking, changes in sexual desire, breast tenderness, bloating and weight gain, swelling of the hands or feet, aches and pain, fatigue, skin problems, gastrointestinal symptoms, including diarrhea, and abdominal pain. What we're gonna dive into today is the origin or the root cause, the real reason that you're experiencing the symptoms. And just like hysteria, there are all manner of treatments for PMS and PMDD, including antidepressants that have been renamed. I am not kidding. Seraphim is simply an antidepressant with a new name. Then there's painkillers that can damage the liver and gastrointestinal tracts. True to form in Western medicine, the symptom is being attacked as if it were the cause. Because here's the truth, and you already know this from previous episodes, there is no money in wellness. True health is when you're in balance. And syndromes, disorders, illnesses, and diseases, they develop when something is out of balance. True to form for this podcast, we are going to talk about the history. I've affectionately called it the herstory of menopause and PMS. We've got to get to the root of it. I consulted Medical Medium. I think it was mostly the first book. There's so much information, so much information. I 
kept it to just the first book. So I want to thank Medical Medium for providing this information and giving me a ton of clarity in my own life, my own situation. And I hope that it does the same for you in listening to this. Is a lot of background included in the chapter. There's a whole chapter on menopause and PMS and the symptoms behind it. I love that there's a lot of history included too. So we're going to summarize a lot of that. Basically, throughout nearly all of history, women viewed menopause in a positive light. Isn't that crazy to think about? Especially the way that people kind of dread it now. Even though it was a reminder of getting older, menopause had this way of gently and painlessly ending the difficulties and inconveniences of premenstrual syndrome and menstruation. It often resulted in a higher libido, and it also allowed for some juicy sex without the worry of getting pregnant accidentally. And for a lot of women, that was a big relief. In the past, women didn't go to the doctor for PMS. They didn't experience notable physical problems or symptoms. They almost always felt better in the time immediately preceding menopause, which now they have a name for that. It's called perimenopause. They always felt better during menopause and postmenopause than they did before. In fact, through the 1800s, it was seldom that medical literature ever even mentioned menopause. But fast forward to 1950. (laughs) Women born from 1900 onward were actually the first ones to experience symptoms that are commonly attributed to menopause. Night sweats, hot flashes, fatigue, panic attacks, anxiety, thinning of the hair, pain in the joints. And there was a tidal wave of middle-aged women experiencing menopause symptoms in the 50s. It really was an epidemic and doctors didn't know what to think. They reported it to pharmaceutical companies and at first there was a consensus that it was all in women's heads, which no surprise there, you know, we're, we're just like 1952 is when the word hysteria was written out of the textbooks for the most part, although from the last episode, we learned that it still carried on in textbooks in later years, but officially it was not recognized as a disorder by the American Psychiatric Association from 1952 on. Basically, yeah, it was crazy women syndrome, and the difference was that... Given that women had finally won the right to vote, they just weren't satisfied with taking to the daybed and being helpless and they knew something wasn't right and they began fighting back against the establishment who just told them that they were crazy. And many women were even committed for life into state mental institutions because of their desperation to be understood and taken seriously. And speaking from experience, the tendency for someone to be thought of and just written off as crazy is much, much higher if the medical establishment, the people in charge, don't understand what's actually going on because they don't do their research. Nobody looked for inflammation markers. Nobody cared about what was going on in my life. It was just the people saying, hey, she's not acting herself. And then, oh, it's because she's had this disorder for her whole life and it just lays dormant like it's some kind of virus. Ironically, they're trying to say that these disorders just lay dormant in our systems when really it's viruses that lay dormant and become the cause of so many of these mental illness symptoms that we experience. But understanding that it's viral related gives us power to take our bodies back from these viruses and heal ourselves. And that means we don't need to have any reliance on the medical establishment, especially not the psychiatric establishment and these pills that they want to pump us full of. 
back in those days, women were experiencing not just the classic symptoms that were commonly ascribed to PMS and menopause that we were talking about earlier, that long list. They also were experiencing memory issues, trouble concentrating, moodiness was a new one, dizziness, things like that. And men were also experiencing the symptoms, but because men were taught to be stoic, they often hid their issues. So what happened was hormones eventually kind of became the bad guy. Pharmaceutical companies jumped on that opportunity. And by the late 1950s, it became big news that women were suffering from so-called hormone deficiencies. Even though men had many of the same issues, they felt so much pressure to keep quiet about them because they didn't want to be seen as weak. And doctors to this day still operate from that mistaken belief that women have hormonal deficiencies. It's very much akin to the belief that our brains have chemical imbalances that only drugs can correct, right? Just kind of like how women used to be forced to get their uteruses removed because they were certain that the uterus was the cause of these emotional problems that they were experiencing. It was like a reproductive lobotomy. It's horrifying to think that that used to happen. And from my own personal experience, things like that still happen, where all of your power is taken away and medicine, so-called medicine, drugs, poisons are forced on you and you're gaslit and convinced that there's something wrong with you. And people who don't know you from Eve or Adam (laughs) think they know more than you do because of the white coat they wear and the degree they got when really they've been brainwashed by drug companies. So what causes this shit, honestly? Um, There's a root cause for hormonal imbalance and deficiencies, and one of them is viruses. Earlier this year, a well-meaning holistic doctor determined that I needed at age 35, (laughs) because I was experiencing perimenopausal symptoms, that I needed bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and prescription thyroid medication, which is just more hormones and a steroid compound desiccated pig thyroid is what it was. Even though that she was aware I had a virus, she was not aware of how that virus operated and how it was affecting me. So her plan was to go after the thyroid, and she used that terminology, go after the thyroid, like the thyroid was attacking me. That's what can be so bad about this belief that the body attacks itself is that we have to attack our organs because we think they're attacking us when really the organs are under attack and we need to work with our bodies to attack the viruses. And I saw the blood work, and I indeed had a super low level of cortisol, which is the hormone that your body produces to be able to deal with stressful stuff, stressors. And that was no doubt contributing to my anxiety. She told me that my own body had started to steal from my progesterone stores once it had depleted the cortisol. What was really happening is the virus was taking all of those and my body wasn't stealing anything. It was the virus that was stealing everything. And so the solution was to add more hormones into the mix, which the virus enjoyed very much. And it kept me awake late at night with the aftermath of the virus chowing down on all these hormones and the worst stomach aches of my entire life because viruses were so happy to be eating these straight hormones, (laughs) like more and more of them every night. She was having me increase the dosage every night. They were having a heyday. And then of course the viruses excrete and create all kinds of toxins in the gut that go up to the brain. And it made for a good round of hellish nights. Eventually I finally read Medical Medium. It was like a gift from God, flowed into my life. Didn't have to research it for myself. It just came into my life. Didn't find it on my own. Somebody gave it to me like like a universe intervention. It was amazing. And then something told me, you know, 
read this, take it seriously. And I didn't expect, you know, you read books and you're like, eh, like it's already stuff I've heard before. This was unlike anything else. So when she told me that my my own body had turned against me and was starting to steal from my progesterone stores after depleting the cortisol, something just wasn't adding up. And I re- so I read Medical Medium from cover to cover, and I realized that the Epstein-Barr virus was the culprit, not my own body. And that's the thing is our bodies are not confused. Your body is not and will not ever attack itself. Our bodies have this incredible intelligence, and they know exactly what to do and how to do it. It's the doctors who are confused. And before 1950, a doctor's opinion was not considered the be-all and end-all. It was from 1950 on that modern medicine really got its grip on society. So the first time in history, it was then that the doctor was kind of heralded as God. For me, the virus was feeding on the additional hormones that I was taking in every day because of the medication, and it was producing more and more toxin in my gut and my brain. I felt worse and worse because I kept giving the virus exactly what it needed to survive instead of starving it. And not to mention all those additional hormones and steroid compounds speed up the aging process. So how do viruses take over? How does all that happen? We know how common it is to catch colds these days. But it's actually quite common to catch colds or feel those symptoms when you're menstruating. And that's along with all the other symptoms you might experience. And some viruses have symptoms that are not common cold symptoms, like sneezing, fever, and runny nose. All those symptoms that I listed out earlier at the beginning of this episode, like the depression, irritability, angry outbursts, diarrhea, bloating, pain, acne, fatigue, mood swings, all those things, those are all symptoms of viruses too. But we've kind of been brainwashed into believing that viruses only result in cold and flu symptoms, which isn't true. And I mentioned before that the immune system devotes 80% of its energy to the reproductive system during menstruation. And that is what allows viruses and bacteria to proliferate in other systems of the body during that time. And these symptoms are actually from underlying health conditions, not PMS, but those symptoms are what gets called PMS. So you might have a sensitive central nervous system, you could have a low-grade viral and bacterial infections like EBV, shingles, streptococcus, intestinal tract disorders because of inflammation and food sensitivities that are caused by the low-grade viral and bacterial infections. You could have a sluggish or even stagnant liver. You could have heavy metal toxicity. The infections underlying these symptoms make themselves known during that time in a woman's cycle because the menstruation process, what's left over, that 20% of the immune system's energy can't manage those health conditions that it can normally keep at bay when 80% of the system's going towards protecting the reproductive system. It's just too much. So PMS and PMDD are the names given to the symptoms that are caused by pathogens present in our bodies. They're allowed to become stronger in the time immediately before and during menstruation because the immune system is busy protecting your reproductive system and can't do its usual job of controlling that viral load. There have been some, we'll say, misguided attempts to <laughs> control the symptoms, and one of those is caffeine. Caffeine really got a foothold in women's lives, especially after the 1940s, when women started experiencing symptoms from the viral explosion. Epstein-Barr didn't come on the scene until around the turn of the the 20th century, like 1900 and on. 
So caffeine helped them power through that fatigue, brain fog, malaise, just a general energy loss, loss of motivation. That was when the caffeine industry was truly born. And a lot of people don't know that caffeine is a stimulant, not just a stimulant, but it kicks in the fight or flight mode and it releases adrenaline in our bodies. And that adrenaline is highly corrosive. It has an interrupting effect on the body because it overproduces adrenaline and it confuses the viability and accuracy of blood tests that look at things like progesterone and estrogen and testosterone levels. And that's why it's actually a good idea to hold off on caffeine, including things like chocolate, cacao, which I have really taken a liking to, matcha, things like that, a few weeks before you get blood tested. And I didn't do that last time I got all my tests done. <laughs> I didn't do that. So who knows what my test results would have had, especially because I was also taking Adderall at the time, which that also affects adrenaline. Maybe that's why I really didn't need all that progesterone that she was pumping me full of. You also want to eliminate hormone-containing foods like eggs, dairy products, even chicken. And even if you don't have additional hormones added to dairy products, right, as you see, like, no hormones added, you know, there's still naturally occurring hormones that can easily augment test results in the bodies and secretions of animals. Anyway, back to caffeine. Routine use of it and reliance on it, it can burn out your adrenal glands, and your adrenal glands produce your adrenaline. Caffeine basically stimulates your adrenal glands to produce more of it. It's an overproduction. They produce a lot of the hormones our bodies need for us to feel and perform at our best every day. That's why we feel good generally when we drink caffeine or we think we do. And what's crazy is that mainstream medical science really doesn't recognize in an official capacity that adrenal fatigue is real. So when the mysterious symptoms that had started getting labeled as menopause really started to take hold in the 1950s, women were not being taught to improve their diets, to counter any triggers that they were experiencing, like heightened stress or caffeine addiction, or even just using caffeine. And doctors back then, they're being faced with patients that had brand new symptoms what they'd learned in their training couldn't explain it. So women weren't really given tools to counter anything and they were up against pathogens but weren't being taught how to level the playing field. They didn't know that they were up against pathogens and when they weren't feeling well, it usually prompted cravings for comfort foods, you know, and those food choices weren't the best. If they were dealing with low-grade viral infections, then oftentimes that comfort food actually fed the viruses. And viruses have an intelligence that they can release chemical signals or signal chemicals that are literally what make you crave the things you crave. So you think it's you craving it, but it's actually the virus asking for it. But since nobody really knew what was going on, the problems just kept getting worse. Oh, and also stress can be exacerbated when you're not heard or understood by doctors or even your loved ones. And if your problems keep getting dismissed as being all in your head or it's because you have a mental illness, it's something that you know is just not true, that's gonna stress you out too. When you know something's wrong and they're saying nothing's wrong or you just need counseling or you just need to take this pill and you're being gaslit for lack of a better term, that can be extremely stressful. Like what kind of world am I living in? These people are insane. Like this is a freaking Black Mirror episode is the way I would always describe it. It feels like I'm in a Black Mirror episode. So doctors had no clue why so many women weren't feeling well, and many of them still don't, <laughs> but they've come up with all manner of excuses and sorts of frilly things to cover it up. Here's a quote from Mayo Clinic's website that just blew me away. 
It says it's frustrating to have persistent symptoms your doctor can't readily explain, but accepting a medically unrecognized diagnosis, like adrenal fatigue, from an unqualified practitioner may leave the real cause, such as depression or fibromyalgia, undiagnosed while it continues to take its toll. Here's the thing. This quote just made me so mad because they refer to depression and fibromyalgia as the real cause when they're not causes, they're symptoms. Depression is a symptom of an underlying state. Fibromyalgia is a symptom. It is not causing, sure it has one of the symptoms is pain, but the fibromyalgia itself, that's what it is. It's pain and it is a symptom, but they're saying, oh, that's a cause of (laughs) adrenal fatigue. No, it's not. They're symptoms and it's a much bigger picture. So what I think is frustrating is for a doctor who doesn't know why you're having symptoms to keep telling you to take this and that medication to manage your symptoms and dismisses you over and over again because you're not a doctor, that's frustrating. And I had friends telling me I needed to listen to my doctors who were just telling me to go on antidepressants and I knew they were dangerous. And when I protested against my friends, and this is like a kind of strange type of peer pressure, My friends just said, but you're not a doctor. And they're right, I'm not a doctor, but I know myself so much better than any of the doctors that I've ever known. It just goes to show that it's a super pervasive mentality that a lot of people have. They believe that the doctor knows best and they don't, you do. You know yourself better than any doctor possibly can. Sure, you'll need some insights from blood tests from time to time, but the blood tests are quite archaic and elementary. There's not a big amount of, there's a lot missing and there's a lot that they can't tell just from testing your blood. Like they can't find a live virus in your blood all the time because the virus may be in your organ systems instead and there's no testing for that yet. So to the whole, but you're not a doctor thing, F that, you know, you know yourself better than any doctor ever can and you have to give more of a shit than they do, you know, you have to believe that you can know yourself and take steps to learn and find out and you know your doctor is probably not sitting up late at night reading medical medium and having an aha moment (laughs) that would somehow mean you don't need to come in to see him or her anymore. It just blows my mind. It blows my mind that the bullshit that's being peddled is real science out there. It's infuriating to read articles like the ones on Mayo Clinic. They're so disempowering and they point to symptoms as causes. What they're really pointing to is a reliance on them and their treatment plan to manage your chronic condition. I put treatment and manage and chronic all in quotes because they want you to believe you have that so you become recurring revenue. It's disgusting. Yeah, because viruses don't always show up on blood tests since viruses aren't always present in the blood. The circulatory system is just one system of the body's many, many systems. And there is currently no test to detect the presence of Epstein-Barr in its many forms in the places it can reside, like the thyroid, liver, and other organ systems. Saliva, blood, urine, those tests are not always accurate in determining if a woman's hormones are balanced. These methods are fallible and often very inaccurate. There's other reasons for the symptoms behind PMS and menopause besides just viruses. There's two of them actually, two major contributors to the rise in the PMS and menopause symptoms. One of them is radiation. So you may have heard about this before. I had not heard of it before and I was blown away. I read about it in medical medium for the first time, but there used to be these things called fluoroscopes in shoe stores and they're basically x-ray boxes and there were no doctors. (laughs) There were no doctors on staff at these shoe stores, but the idea was that if you saw an x-ray of someone's foot, you could choose a better shoe for them. 
and women would go to the shoe store weekly sometimes and just get their feet x-rayed and it was the most radiation ever taken on at one time and it was a 40-year period between the 1920s and 50s that this was super popular and it was a huge huge mistake that's largely been swept under the rug because they were very dangerous and they just quietly started to exit out of our society so yeah, that was one of the major contributors. And then the other one is DDT, which back in the 1940s was used everywhere. It was on crops and sprayed all over parks and kids would even get all soapy with the pesticides because they had a lot of suds in them and that was fun for kids. They would just get them all soaked up and they would do this as the DDT truck drove through neighborhoods spraying DDT salesmen would knock on the front door of every home in the neighborhoods and sell women cans of DDT to spray in their flowers and gardens and in order to like I guess prove to the customers that safety the salesman would even spray apples with DDT and then said that it was nutritious <laughs> and so by 1950 DDT use was at its all-time high central nervous systems and livers of countless, countless women had become overloaded with the toxin. And if it hadn't been for Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which you may have learned about in history class like I did back in high school and college, came out in 1962, a book called Silent Spring, exposing how harmful pesticides were, the world may have continued to overlook all the harm they were causing. And what's nuts is that critics attacked Rachel Carson and called her hysterical, <laughs> which was the exact term used for women's mystery symptoms at the time. So it's certainly not a coincidence either that when the massive chemical industry that was behind DDT took a hit from the big public awareness because of Rachel Carson's book, that a new industry started to emerge and really dominate, and that was the hormone industry, the hormone replacement therapy industry. Pharmaceutical companies encouraged the hormone trends when they realized that billions of dollars could be made by demonizing menopause and creating drugs to supposedly cure it. So in the early 1960s, a major promotional campaign was launched that was claiming estrogen deficiencies were the cause of most of the ills that were being felt by women before, during, and after menopause. And then sales of products that were promising to replace that supposedly missing estrogen completely skyrocketed, just off the chart sales. The drugs had actually already been in development for many years. They act as steroids that actually suppress the immune system, which gives the illusion of relief from the viral inflammation symptoms, nutritional deficiencies, and the toxic exposure from things like DDT. What it did was it hid diseases, and in doing so, it allowed cancers, viruses, bacteria, and plenty of other things to continue attacking women's bodies and age them rapidly. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that hormones are agers, not anti-agers. It hides diseases because it suppresses the immune system, so it allows cancers, viruses, things to grow faster. And so what happened was cancer and strokes started to go up in women who were doing the hormone replacement therapy, and it wasn't until 2002 that a really big study was published that involved 160,000 postmenopausal women. And the studies concluded that hormone replacement therapy increased the risk of breast cancer, heart attacks, and strokes. It rapidly sped up the aging process. And quote directly from medical medium, conventional trends in healthcare are so powerful, sometimes nothing can stop them.
So menopause became the scapegoat for dozens of symptoms that really had to do with completely different causes, like radiation and pesticide poisoning. Similar to the list in the beginning of the show, there are symptoms that are misattributed to menopause, like night sweats, hot flashes, fatigue, dizziness, weight gain, digestive issues, bloating, incontinence, headaches, moodiness, all of the stuff, so much overlap between menopause and the premenstrual syndrome and so many other illnesses that we deal with. Memory issues, trouble concentrating, heart palpitations, panic attacks, joint pain, tingling, dry or brittle nails, dry cracked skin, hair thinning, hair loss, tingling. Yeah, all those symptoms are misattributed to menopause. It's actually completely different causes. Radiation, pesticide poisoning, of course, the viruses that love to feed on pesticides and radiation. Viruses love toxins. So rather than waiting several decades, this is, this is what's happening today. This is menopause today. So instead of waiting several decades to strike until a woman is in her 40s or 50s, some of these virus strains and toxins are now starting to affect women in their 30s, like me. But even women younger than that, in their 20s and some even in their teen years, are experiencing these symptoms. And doctors don't have an explanation for why anybody in their teens, 20s, 30s have perimenopause symptoms. But it's happening to younger and younger women. It's alarming. They're experiencing the same symptoms that used to only affect women in their 40s and 50s which is why we've always thought of it as menopause. And they're the symptoms of Epstein-Barr virus. That virus causes thyroid disorders, liver problems, neurological symptoms, and so, so, so much more. It's the same conditions that were behind the hormone perimenopause and menopause blame game that began back in the 1950s that we've been talking about, and it was never menopause to begin with. And so even while the, those fluoroscope machines and DDT, they've been phased out, women today are still surrounded by toxins in the environment, pesticides, herbicides, heavy metals, and other pollutants that are common in our technological era. And then of course there's old toxins that are passed down from previous generations. Some countries still use GDT too. And at the same time, we've suffered epidemics of new forms of cancer. There's more viruses, more bacteria, and other illnesses that are born from the poisons of the modern age. But the truth gets buried. It gets buried underneath ego, status, stupidity, greed. (laughs) Doctors don't want to admit they believe the lie and they just look at the other way instead. They still prescribe birth control pills as the number one option when young women are experiencing any type of symptoms that have to do with their period. And the pill has a similar steroid-like effect on suppressing the symptoms without addressing the cause. And that's the problem. And like I mentioned in the last episode, birth control pills have been recognized as a class one carcinogen since 2005. They cause cancer, just like the old hormone replacement did. So what now? What now? (laughs) What are we doing now? We're going to end this episode in a few minutes here, but we're going to do a deeper dive into this in the next episode with a very special guest, the woman, the legend who gave me the medical medium book and told me that I'd love it. I started reading it the very next day and everything changed for me. And now she's my roommate. So I'm excited to introduce her to you on the show for episode 11. We're looking at not exactly... We're looking at not only exactly how to heal the symptoms of so-called PMS, PMDD, and menopause, we're going to take a deeper dive into the history of how the fuck we got here. (laughs) Because just like one does not suddenly come down with bipolar disorder or any other disorder or disease that allegedly has no cure, our world that we live in does not suddenly come down with the absurdity we are witnessing today. And that absurdity has become normal for so many of us because it's always been this way, except it hasn't. 
it hasn't always been this way. That is one of the most dangerous phrases in any society that it's always been this way. It's a major deception and limiting belief that has held us back in ways a lot of us are just waking up to. So I look forward to that episode with you guys and introducing my roommate Michelle to you. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks so much for tuning in to Misdiagnosed. Thank you so much for tuning in to Misdiagnosed. If this show has helped you in any way, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Sharing your experience will help others who are lost in the darkness find their own way out of the science of lies. Please note that while I may go in-depth into medical topics and have acquired substantial medical knowledge, I am not a medical doctor. I'm a researcher. I'm a messenger of hope for other survivors of industrialized psychiatry. Because of how toxic psychiatric drugs are, it can be extremely dangerous, even life-threatening, to suddenly stop taking certain drugs. This is especially true for antidepressants, antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. The longer you've taken the drug, the more dangerous withdrawal can be. If you want to heal your brain and soul naturally, the way it was designed to do, please seek the help of a compassionate and patient-centered physician to start the process of withdrawing from them as safely as possible. It will take time for your brain to reacclimate to life without the drugs, and there are doctors out there who will support you in your quest to save your brain. Never give up. You can heal.